following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. Good morning. Turn to Mark chapter 13, please. Mark chapter 13, that's page number 849. If you do not have a Bible, please take one of the ones out of the seat in front of you and use them because you will need it today. I'm going to do a little exercise, I guess you could call it, in the middle of our time together in your, in, in your word. Oh my goodness, heresy already. I've camped this weekend and I can't get my brain right since. Uh, we're going to do a little exercise in the middle and you will need a Bible for that, so page 849. As we have done the last two Sundays, we will read the entire chapter of Mark 13, keeping the context together as we work through this. If you will, please look at verse 1. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumor of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard. For they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them, and the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has, as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard, I have told you all things beforehand. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory, and then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. 
so also when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight, or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Let's pray. Jesus, we, uh, we just acknowledge this morning that we have very finite minds. They are limited. They are fallen. They are corrupt. And we are dealing with your perfect truth, your perfect words with you as an infinite being who is sovereign over all and knows all. And it is it is very easy and tempting for us to try to put you in a box that we can fully understand, or at least to attempt to do such a thing. But that is folly, because you are not the kind of God who can be put in any box. And you constantly surpass every attempt of man to understand you and your ways perfectly. And so I pray as we work through the text this morning, as we think through the ideas that we need to think through today, that you give us humility, that you give us honest hearts and minds to consider what your word says, and that we let your word shape us rather than allowing us to try to shape your word into our thoughts. And so we ask your blessing on our time. Spirit, please be at work, not just in those listening, but in me as well to speak clearly. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, at this point in our study of Mark 13, I find myself at a bit of a crossroads from a teaching perspective. It's, it's kind of a, a chicken and the egg sort of, sort of moment because I have two concepts, two perspectives that I need to, to help you understand, and I'm not quite sure what should come first. On the one hand, there's a part of me that says we need to just go into verse 14 and start working into this next section of the text in order for me to show you a concept that's very important for you to understand, to have a right understanding of, of Mark 13 as a whole. But on the other hand, I kind of feel like I need to show you the concept first in advance so that you can even see the text properly beginning in verse 14 and moving forward. And so I'm not quite sure which one should come first. Should it be the chicken or the egg? You kind of need a chicken to lay an egg. You kind of have to have an egg to get a chicken. Uh, I'm not sure which is the right way to do it, and so I just made a call this week. I have been torn thinking this through all week long. I just made a call. Time will tell if it's a good or a bad call, but it is a call nonetheless. To introduce us to where we're going to go today, I'd like to begin with a baseball analogy. I, I used to love baseball. You wouldn't know that now if you knew anything about me, but I used to, I used to love baseball. Um, I don't follow anymore. In fact, the I watched the first baseball game that I have seen in years when I watched the Cubs beat the Pirates on Wednesday night in order to go into the postseason. And I'll be honest, though, even as I was watching that game unfold, about the fifth or sixth inning in, I got bored. 
And so I changed the channel. I found an Everybody Loves Raymond episode, and I, I love those shows. So I was watching that, and I kept checking back time and, you know, again, just to see what the score was. But, but I, used to, I used to love baseball. I played it as a kid. I was a right fielder, uh, enjoyed that tremendously. I was a huge Atlanta Braves fan, and that was long before the Braves were a good team. In fact, I remember somewhere about six, seven, eight years old, I wrote a letter to Dale Murphy. Who in here even remembers who Dale Murphy is? Like six of us. Excellent. He was the best player on the Braves team at the time. I wrote a letter to him, and I got back. I'm sure it was just a form letter that the Braves sent out to any kid who wrote a letter to them, but it came with an oversized baseball card. It was like this, well, I guess my hands were smaller back then. I don't know. It's hard to keep perspective about those things as you grow older, but it seemed like it was like this big, and I thought they had sent me pure gold. I, I was so excited to get that in the mail. Uh, I remember when the Braves finally did become good there in the early to mid-90s, just being a nervous wreck when the postseason came. I mean, I, can see, I could see myself um, squatting in front of our television back in the days when televisions were in wooden boxes that sat on the floor. Remember that? And I would sit like a foot away from the screen, close enough to feel the static electricity coming off the tube, and just rocking back and forth, waiting to see if the Braves would win the National League pennant or the World Series or whatever it was at the time. I don't recall. I just loved baseball. Well, baseball has definitely fallen on hard times, both in American culture, as football is now clearly the sport of choice, but it's also fallen on hard times with me. I don't watch it anymore. I don't follow it. I don't think about it. I don't really care anymore. I definitely enjoyed watching the game the other night. Like I said, I got bored. And yet, despite all of that, for some reason, over the years, as I have tried to think through my role as a preacher, as a teacher, I generally make more analogies to the sport of baseball than I do to to any other sport as I think about preaching, particularly when it comes to comparing the strategy of preaching between what I would call a one-and-done kind of sermon and a and a whole series of sermons. One-and-done preaching is exactly what the name implies. It is when I, or anyone else for that matter, as a preacher, has a single opportunity to preach to either a particular audience or in a particular context. So, for example, next week, or excuse me, next month, I'll be preaching in chapel over at Virginia Beach Theological Seminary. They normally ask me to come once a year. I've got 30 minutes to to introduce the text, to explain any issues that arise in the text, any questions that I need to answer, to apply it, to, to do all of these things. I don't get a second week. I, I can't like extend it out if I want to. It's one and done. I've got one shot, and I better get in there and make it good, or I, I, I've just completely lost it. And when I think of that kind of preaching, I tend to think of what, like a, how a pinch hitter feels when they've been put in the game. You know, They've been put in for a single at bat. This is it. This is all they get. This one at bat, they're supposed to go up there, and you know what the mentality of a pinch hitter is at that moment, right? He's swinging for the bleachers. He wants to hit a homer because this is his shot, and if he doesn't do it in this one shot, he's probably not going to play anymore. You, you, You don't get the same feeling in series preaching, and by series preaching, I'm referring to, of course, what I've been doing here now for eight years at Cornerstone, where we just slowly methodically, step-by-step, work verse-by-verse through the scriptures to try to help us get a a deeper and better understanding of not just the books we study, I hope, but the scriptures as a whole. And when I first started preaching back in 2007, 
I came into this role very much still with that pinch hitter mentality, you know, because that was my experience beforehand. I never having preached week after week after week after week, it was all I had known. I'd preach every six months or every, you know, eight months, something like that, whenever someone would give me a chance. And so I showed up uh, to Cornerstone and I got up here and I was like, I'm swinging for the bleachers every week, right? I'm trying to hit a home run every single week. What's the problem with trying to hit a home run at every at bat? <laughs> you, you fail, okay? I'll just say it that way you fail bad because you realize that even in baseball, the, the best hitters in the game fail 60 to 70% of the time. They strike out a lot. And I struck out a lot. And, and while I'm not sure when exactly it happened, at some point in those co- first couple of years of preaching, my mentality shifted from that of a hitter to that of a manager. See, a manager in baseball watches a game very differently than a, than a hitter does. You know, a manager might look at a scenario where he's got a runner on second, and the next guy at bat just, you know, he's just not having a good night. The pitcher's in his head, just something's not working right, and, and he doesn't want to take the guy out of the game yet, and so he tells him, go up there, bunt. Bunt down the first baseline. I know you're going to get out, but we want to advance the runner to third because the next guy up, he's got a hot bat tonight, and if he gets a, a, a line drive, he gets a, a base hit, we scored a run. The manager's thinking more big picture. And, and so if the guy goes up there and he bunts and he gets thrown out at first, it's not a waste. The guy didn't fail just because he's out. He, he advanced the runner. And advancing the runner is important in the game of baseball. That's how you win ball games. Well, in a similar way, the question for me now over these last five years or so has been in preaching, it, it's not did I hit a home run. Uh, you know the fact is I often do not. The question is, did I advance the runner? Did I move us ahead in our understanding of the text so that, so that we're growing in continuously in a knowledge of what's going on here in the text? Every great now and then, I might get lucky and hit a home run. You know, we go all the way around the bases in our understanding. We make a, a, a lot of ground. Other weeks, it's triple, a double. Some weeks, it's a base hit. Other weeks, I'm happy to get a walk. Uh, <laughs> While I always try to do my best at each at bat, I'm okay now with all of those outcomes as long as we advance the runner. Okay, you following the analogy? You with me on this point? For those of you who don't like baseball, sorry, you might be lost. I share all of this with you to inform you here at the, the beginning of today's message that I have every intention of bunting today. I'm not even going to try to swing with today's message. Um, My only goal in these next 30 minutes or so that we're going to spend together is to try to advance the runner of your understanding of how to think carefully, honestly, and biblically about a very detailed question here in the text. And it's going to affect our understanding of Mark 13 in tremendous ways, but I think if you think about the pattern of what we do today, it'll have an even bigger impact on your overall study of Scripture in general. And so while today may not be very devotional, inspirational, uh, convicting, interesting, any of the above, I, I believe that our study today is an incredibly important step in our overall understanding, our overall goal of properly understanding Mark chapter 13. Now, over the past two Sundays, as we have been working through this passage, I have pointed out the fact that the disciples ask a question here in the story that is based on an incorrect assumption. As you now well know, in verse 2 here, Jesus has predicted the literal destruction of the Jewish temple there in the city of Jerusalem. And while it is obvious 
Things that are obvious sometimes are not obvious to everyone. So let me just point out the fact that this is a very specific prophecy. It is dealing with a very particular building in a very particular city that will, at some point, be gone. And yet, when the disciples hear it, they hear more than just this specific prophecy. They hear Jesus making a statement about the end of the world. Not just the end of this building, but the very end of the world itself. They assume that these two ideas, these two events, are one and the same. And so they ask him, as you can see here in these verses, to tell them the times and the signs when all these things are about to be accomplished. And as I have said at least two times now for sure, that means that as Jesus begins to answer their question, part of what he needs to do in their minds is to correct this wrong assumption. He needs to to separate these two ideas out to show them that these two ideas, these two events are not one and the same. Well, that means that some of the things that he's going to talk about beginning in verse 5 and moving forward, some of the things he's going to talk about are going to have to do specifically with the destruction of the temple, while other things that he talks about, verse 5 and following, will have to do specifically with the end of the world. And this is a very important concept for you and I to grasp as as we're walking through this passage. If we know from the outset that part of what Jesus wants to do is to separate these ideas and make distinctions between them, then I think we have a responsibility to to honor that and recognize that as we study through the text ourselves, to, to honor those distinctions in our own understanding. We should not try to muddy lines that Jesus himself is trying to make clear. Do you understand that just general concept that I'm making there, a general point? Here, though, is the difficult question before us today, and I mean... It's difficult. You're going to have to put your thinking caps on in a way maybe you don't always have to do on a Sunday morning because I try to help ease things, but sometimes things aren't easy. Here's a difficult question before us today. Where are those lines drawn? Jesus is drawing a line between two events. He's separating out two ideas that the disciples have wrongly put together. Jesus wants to pull them apart. So there is a line somewhere here in the text, but where exactly is it? And let me assert something to you now here at the outset so that, and I hope I'll prove it in the moments to come, this isn't just an academic question that has no practical bearing on you and your understanding of the scriptures. Uh, Where we see these lines drawn in the text will have a huge ramification for you on how you understand, interpret, and apply Mark chapter 13. For example, here we go. Let's take the section that we looked at last Sunday. Last Sunday, we walked through verses 5 through 13. And I went back and counted in my notes, and as I counted there, and I, of course I didn't go back to re-listen to it to hear for sure that I said all of these times, but in writing, in the course of preaching those nine verses, I made at least 13 clear references to the fact that I believe that those nine verses had to do with the period of time between when Jesus was speaking here in Mark 13 and the literal destruction of the temple. 
And if you want to put some time markers around this, because we'll talk about this more, I think, next Sunday. I think we'll get to it next Sunday. Uh, the temple is destroyed in AD 70. Okay, so there's your time marker, AD 70. And Jesus is crucified in or around AD 30. So, so what I'm asserting here is that, that these verses 5 to 13 only apply to about a 40-year window of time. That what Jesus is trying to do here is that he's trying to help the disciples, and I would say the early church in general, and then to be a little more specific, I would say the early Jewish church, which I'll explain again more later. I think he's trying to help them understand this unique period of time between his death and resurrection and this coming judgment of God on the temple. What's going to happen? Uh, how should we respond? What, what things are important to look for? What things are not important to look for? They asked for times and signs of both the destruction of the temple and the end of the world. And I am saying to you that I think in verses 5 to 13, Jesus is in the beginning stages of answering that question regarding the destruction of the temple. Now, just in case it isn't clear to you as you're thinking through my reasoning, I'm telling you in advance here that I think wherever that line is drawn, it's somewhere after 13, right? Do you see that? I'm, I'm, I'm arguing that anything before 13 has to do with the destruction of the temple, and anything after 13 doesn't, without answering out loud. Do you agree with me? You don't have to answer that. In fact, I don't want you to. In fact, what I want you to do is let's engage in a little experiment, okay? A little Bible study exercise that I'm going to put you somewhat in the driver's seat here. I will direct it, but I will let you do the work. And this is where you are going to need your Bibles. I hope you're in Mark 13. If you are, I want you to look down at the next paragraph, which begins here in verse 14 and goes all the way, all the way to verse 23. And I'm going to do what preachers never do. I'm going to stop talking for a moment. And I want you to take these next 30 seconds or so to read or skim through verses 14 to 23 and think about the question, where is this line drawn? Go. When you're done, look up at me. By skim, I mean skim. Our nursery workers won't like it if I keep you too long. Okay. Got a sense of at least the, the, the paragraph 14 to 23, saw what's in it. Okay. Without answering out loud, just in your own mind, does that paragraph come before or after this line? Okay, there's a line somewhere in the text. Jesus is dividing out the events of the destruction of the temple and of the end of the world. Is this paragraph dealing with things that, that lead up to or are related to the destruction of the temple? Or is it dealing with events that lead up to or are related to the end of the world? Which side of the line would you put this on? And I'll go ahead and tell you, because I know there's probably like 10 of you in here trying to do this. You can't say both, okay? Because that violates the very thing that I think Jesus is doing in the text. He's trying to, to separate to make things clear. So you can't muddy what Jesus is trying to separate. You have to make a call. Whatever your answer is, just hold it for a second. And, and without developing this out too much, recognize that whichever side of the line you put that paragraph on, 
it has ramifications for how you understand, interpret, and apply that paragraph. Just take as an example, and again, I'm not going to develop this at all today, this reference in verse 14 to the abomination of desolation, right, which is really cool or scary sounding or both, okay? If you put it on the, we'll say the front side of the line here, if you put it on the side of, of the destruction of the temple, then what that will do is it will force you to look back into the Roman attack on the city of Jerusalem and the actual destruction of the temple to find some reference point, some fulfillment for this, this prophecy. However, if you're on the other side of the line and you think it has to do with the end of the world, then it's going to force you to look forward for some future fulfillment of these words, most likely to the book of Revelation, to talk about the Antichrist, uh, the beast, or one of those uh, beings or figures mentioned there. You recognize those are two very different interpretations, right? Okay. And what drove you, whichever side you ended up on, what drove you to either one of those interpretations? Well, it was where you drew your line. This is an important question. Let's do it again. Look at verses 24 to 27 now. Again, I will pause and let you read or skim them quickly, okay? When you're done, look at me. Without answering out loud. Is this paragraph before or after the line in your mind? In other words, is it describing events leading up to or related to the destruction of the temple? Or is it dealing with describing leading up, uh, events leading up to or related to the end of the world? Which side will you put it on? Okay. Got your answer in mind for this paragraph? You still remember your answer to the, the other paragraph? Now, look at verses 28 to 31. Do it again. Read or skim, look up at me when you're done. I want to ask you three questions this time. Question number one, without answering out loud, which side of the line did you put this paragraph on? Is it describing events leading up to or related to the destruction of the temple? Or is it describing events leading up to or related to the end of the world? Okay. You got an answer? You certain on it? Question two. Does your answer to that paragraph in any way affect the answers you gave about which side of the line the previous two paragraphs were on? Don't answer out loud. And number three. Are you beginning to get confused at all? <laughs> in this process? Are you feeling a little unsure now about some of your answers? One final paragraph. Look at verses 32 to 37 and do it again last time. Read or skim them. Look at me when you're done. without answering out loud. Is that paragraph before or after the line in your mind? Is it describing events leading up to or related to the destruction of the temple? Or is it describing events leading up to or related to the end of the world? Which side of the line would you put that one on? 
let me share with you the point of this little exercise, okay? Thank you for, for humoring me in doing this for a moment. All I am trying to do here is I am trying to prove my assertion that I made at the beginning that the question of where you draw this line will have a huge ramification on your understanding of the interpretation, application, etc., of this passage. It's, it's not just an academic question left to scholars to debate back and forth. I mean, if you and I are going to understand this properly, we need to have some sense of what we're doing here in the text, uh, have some sense of, of where we're going to draw these lines, and, and more importantly, I would say, wild, or why. Do, do like one or two of you at least at this point see the value of the question itself of where we draw the line now? I hope. Just say yes. Just make me feel better. Thank, thank you. Excellent. All right. So what I'm going to do now for the rest of our time this morning is I want to show you how and where I am drawing my lines. How and where I'm drawing my lines. And it's important that we think through the how first because the how actually drives us to the where. And to show you what I mean by that, I want you to think back, oh, about five minutes ago now when I kept asking you which side of the line would you put each paragraph on. Whether you realized it or not, each of you had some methodology some process or system for answering that question and for making your decision. Now, for some of you, it may have been nothing more than eeny, meeny, miny, mo. I mean, you might have read the paragraph and been like, I don't know. You know, I see Jordan doing this all the time. When we're studying things, he's like, that's just how he decides things. But, but for the rest of you, I hope, I hope that you at least attempted to look at the details that were given in each paragraph, and then you try to use those details to put the paragraph on its proper side of the line. In some way, shape, or form, whether you did it well or not is to be debated, perhaps. But, but, but understand that even as you were going through the process of how, as you were looking at the details, that raised certain questions about your process. For example... As you were doing that, did you recognize what you didn't know about each paragraph? Think back to week one and my six challenges at the end. Did you recognize what you didn't know in each paragraph? Uh, did you assume things of the text that you shouldn't have assumed? Did your background on this subject in any way affect your answers? Because you've always been told that something means this and was applying to that, and so therefore you just kind of went with it because that's all you know. Uh, my guess is that the answers to all of those questions, all three of them, are yes. For every single person in this room who was working through that little exercise, that all of you, regardless of where you drew your lines, were affected by those things because I know they were for me. They all affected me and my own understanding. And so what that did for me was it, it forced me to look for a better methodology, Something um, anchored in the text that isn't driven by my ignorance, my assumptions, or my background. And, and I mean, when you think about those three points, that affects a lot of things about how you understand the scriptures, ignorance, assumptions, and background. Well, thankfully, a guy named R.T. France, who is a New Testament scholar whose commentary on Mark, um, while heavy and a little overly technical at points perhaps, has been very helpful to me in my study of this book, in his commentary on Mark 13, he presents a methodology, a way of answering this question of where the line should be drawn, that has, after much thought and much study, convinced me of both how and where we should draw this line. And so all I'm asking for this moment, this morning is an audience. Just, 
set aside everything you thought, all your answers to the questions before. Just listen with an open mind. He does this by drawing your attention to time, sequence, and reference markers throughout this passage. Time, sequence, and reference markers throughout this passage. Notice, for example, that here in verse 2, Jesus gives no time indicator as to when his prediction will be fulfilled, right? There's nothing there. You just get the sense that it's at some point in the future. That's as close as you could get. And yet, when the disciples ask him about it, what is the very first question? When? It's a, it's a time question. When will these things be? And then, of course, they want to know the signs as well. And so Jesus begins to answer their question. In verse 5, he says, watch out. Here's a whole bunch of things. None of them are the answer. Okay? Not yet. Nope, that's a time answer, right? Not yet. Here's the stuff, not yet the, not yet the time. In fact, he goes on to say in the next section, our next few verses, all of these things, they're just the beginning. Time marker again, they're just the beginning. Again, in verse 9, you see this command to watch out, to be on guard with the implication that the end is still something that's coming. In verse 10, he says the good news of the gospel has to go out to the nations first. So there's something that has to come before the end. We haven't even really discussed what the end is yet. In verse 13, he says that the one who endures to the end will be saved, which implies to me that the end is still something in the future in his answer. Do you, does that make sense? You see it? It's still coming at some point ahead. But in verse 14, we make a shift a little bit. Now it's not, you know, not yet, not yet, not yet, beginning, not yet. This has to happen first, not yet. Now it's but when. And this is opposed to all of the not yets in verses 5 to 13. And here you're going to begin to notice a repetition of a reference marker. And I'm going to show it, tell you about it first, and you'll see it here in the next slide. You're going to see a reference marker to these things, those things, these days, those days, or just days. It's always plural. It's an important point. He's going to keep talking about this in reference to the time markers that he's using, okay? He says, when you see this, then do or don't do certain things. Do flee. Don't delay. And notice the reference here in verse 17 to those days. You see it again in verse 19 when he talks about those days. You see it again in verse 20. This is a reference to the days, two times there in the verse. Then in those days, if anyone says don't believe, and the implication again still is that the end isn't here yet. He's like keeping this thing going. He's, he's holding it out a little bit on them. He says, be on guard, watch out, you have been forewarned. All these things have been told to you before that point. Finally, he says, but in those days, there's the reference marker, after that tribulation, what tribulation? The one he talked about in verse 19. Um, notice here, there's just an unbroken chain of sequence. Boom, 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 he keeps moving it forward. Boom, 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 boom. All of this is answering the question about, the disciples asked him about when, and it's not until verse 26, and then, and then, he finally gives some concrete notion or answer to the idea that was asked all the way back and forth. The time sequence in Jesus' answer is unbroken up to this point, and I know you have a ton of questions, hold them for a second. And now he begins to draw some conclusions and some applications from this time sequence answer that he gives. He first uses a parable 
about how you can discern the coming of summer by the appearance of buds on a fig tree. When you see a fig tree beginning to put out leaves, you know something, right? You know the summer is near. Well, in a similar way, when you see these things taking place, you know that he, who is he, don't assume, you know that he is near. Therefore, he says, all these things will take place before this generation passes away. Note, they wanted to know the times and signs of the destruction of the temple and of the end of the world. Well, Jesus has given an unbroken sequence of, of answer to one of those two events. Not yet, but when, then, you know, I'm telling you beforehand, it's these things, those things, these days, those days. Jesus is giving an answer to one of these events. He is laying out events that are and are not indicators of the time. And he has laid out both a chronological sequence as well as a rough indicator of the time in which this will occur. When you see these things, then you know. And all of this is going to happen within uh, this generation. That's kind of the end boundary. Whenever this generation dies, it will have happened before that point. You with me? Kind of? Now, notice verse 32. But concerning that day, singular, or that hour. Well, wait a minute. Which day or which hour? Because no singular day or hour has yet been mentioned anywhere in the text. But whatever it is, notice that for that event, there are no times given. There are no signs given by Jesus to the disciples in this context. In fact, he tells them point blank, you do not know when that time will come. You don't know at all. Uh, you know, the fig tree parable is nowhere in sight now. In the fig tree parable, you, when you see the, the leaves budding, you know summer is near. See, that, those, that event gives you a clue as to the time of summer coming. In a similar way, when you see these things happening, you know that he is near. That was what he said back in that parable. Specifically then, he also said all of it's going to happen within this generation. They're given a, a definite time marker, but now none of that here. Two times he tells them this. They do not know. You see it again here in verse 35. And so the parable this time is very different. This time it's like a man who's returning home to his servants, you know, from a long journey back in a day when there's no phone, no email, and he can't call and say, hey, I'll be there tomorrow at 7. This time, it's of their responsibility to, to simply be watching, to stay awake, because there is no sign and there, there is no time given. In other words, the time of this event is unknown, which is clearly different than the other event. Not yet, but when, then, within this generation. You know, there, there is a clear, undeniable shift in both sequence and reference from verse 31 and what came before it to verse 32 and what comes after it. Can you see that? At least a little bit. It is drastic in the text, grammatically. It is clear. Um, it is surprising. And it is undeniable. And believe me, I've tried to deny it for two weeks now. Um, <laughs> because quite honestly, not drawing the line until verse 31 goes against everything that I have been taught in the past and forces me to rethink my assumed interpretations of some of these verses, 
particularly verses 24 to 27. And you look down at that, if, if what he is arguing and what I am saying I cannot get away from now is right, then how we have read verses 24 to 27 may be in question. I'll give you a spoiler, just a hint. Remember one of the things I said to you in week one, the six things is you need to read with eyes towards the Old Testament. If you knew your Old Testament better, things might stand out a little differently. Just for whatever that's worth, I'll throw that out now, and we'll see where that goes in the future. I, 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 have, I have tried to prove him wrong, but I, I can't do so. I, I think he's right. I think that you know, as you look at the series of events and exhortations and references in verses 5 to 31, that they constitute an unbroken chain of argument that is meant to be understood together. All of the references, all of those things, I think, are pointing to and talking about the destruction of the temple in the city of Jerusalem that was going to come within uh, the, that generation by AD 70. Uh, he's answering their question. They wanted to know times. They wanted to know signs. He gives it to them. But in verses 32 and following, there is a shift of reference to some future day and hour where he does not answer their questions about times and signs. I think verse 32 is the beginning of the correction of their false assumption about the overlap of these two separate events. This is how I'm drawing my line, and this is where I am drawing my line, just so you know. Now, if you're a thinking person, if you're analytical, if you are curious um, if you've ever studied this kind of this subject or this passage at all, this will no doubt raise a ton of questions in your minds. Did I just understate something? Absolutely, okay? Um, you're going to have textual questions. You're going to have theological questions. You're going to have interpretive questions. You're going to have sanity questions about me. Um, I cannot answer any of those excellent questions today at all. Uh, remember I warned you at the beginning, all I'm doing today is bunting. All right, I'm, I'm purposely letting myself strike out, you know, get out today, thrown out at first, just to advance the runner of your understanding. But I am asking you to show a great deal of maturity, and, and you do on a regular basis, uh, so don't take that as an insult in any way. Uh, I'm asking you to have a manager's mentality today. To not think about this as a single at-bat, but to be able to step back and look at the game as a whole to see how this fits into a larger picture of explanation and understanding. You may not have gotten all your questions answered today. In fact, I'm sure I just added a whole bunch of questions to your list. And this is definitely not devotional. This has definitely not been inspirational. This has definitely not been convicting. It's probably been confusing. But there's another batter on deck here, all right? And unless I get killed in a car accident this week, which in that case, you're all going to be like in a really bad spot wondering where this was going. Uh, next Sunday, we'll be able to make a play and hopefully begin to drive home some runs because we did what needed to be done today. Does, do you understand what I'm doing? Okay, I'm setting us up for something. The only application, because I feel like I need to make at least one, <laughs> the only application I can make for you today is to exhort you to remember the supremacy and sufficiency of Scripture in all things, which is part of why Chris had George read 2 Timothy 3. You know, in 2 Timothy 3, Paul tells Timothy that Scriptures are given by inspiration of God. That means they are God's words breathed out by him, full of his power, his life, his understanding. So they're filled with these things, and he says they're profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness' sake. 
all of that with the same goal, which is to make the man of God, the, the follower of Jesus, complete and equipped for every good work. Well, I have focused very heavily on the teaching part of that today, okay? Not so much on the reproving, correcting, or training in righteousness part, but in the end, I want you to understand that no matter what, it's to make us complete and equipped for every good work. We want our understanding to be shaped by the scriptures, not the other way around. And so I challenge you, start studying. Study these things for yourself, see if they're true, and in all these things, humble yourself under the word of God. We'll pick back up next Sunday. Will you pray? Jesus, we, uh, we're trying to understand your word. We're trying to be honest. We're trying to be consistent. We're trying to not impose our thoughts on the text, but rather let the text drive our thoughts. And this is very difficult because, for some of us at least, because we come with, with certain baggage to this question and to the subject that is, we just can't walk away from it. It's just always there. And I pray, Lord, that as we think through your word, whether it's in this example here or other examples that we run into when we study your word elsewhere, that we are willing to be humble, to think honestly and carefully about what it is you have to say to us. I mean, you took the time to, to have Mark write these things for us in these specific ways, so it's not just a waste of our time. Help us to, to think carefully, biblically, and, and dependent on the Spirit about all of these questions and things and allow the text just to take us wherever, wherever you want us to go. So I thank you for this church. I thank you for their willingness to endure uh, an exercise like this today. And I pray that you will bring us back together next Sunday to continue this journey through Mark 13 so that we can see you, Jesus, for who you are and what it is you're trying to show us here in Mark's gospel, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.